Let's take our Bibles and turn to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. All right, last week we left off in verse 7. Ahab has, or excuse me, Elijah has now been commanded to show himself to Ahab. God said he would send rain upon the earth. The spiritual famine in Samaria had some earthly consequences. No dew, no rain, and a dwindling food supply, the Bible called a sore famine. Even the animals were affected by it. The mules and horses were in danger of starving to death. And out of all these things, and in the midst of this famine and drought, Ahab, the spiritually depraved king, sent God's man not to intercede on his behalf before the Lord, but to find grass for the mules and horses. And we applied that example of foolishness to what many congregations do with their own man of God, if indeed he is a man of God. And I'm thankful we can say ours is. And in the midst of great spiritual famine today, such carnal people like Ahab look for earthly remedies. They totally miss the boat. And now Obadiah, who the Bible says feared the Lord from his youth, he feared the Lord greatly, was directed into the path of God's mighty prophet, Elijah. Now let's look at verse 8 at the new part of our study. Now back in verse 7, uh, Obadiah had asked Elijah, are you Elijah? And he answered him, I am. Go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here. Go tell thy Lord again, Elijah is commanding Obadiah to go tell King Ahab, whom he calls thy Lord with a little l, that Elijah was there at that place in the wilderness or between where Elijah was and where he was going. And again, as we studied last week, Elijah is not suggesting that Ahab be called Lord as in Jehovah. And in your Bible, that is probably in all capital letters. The word Lord translated from the Hebrew name Jehovah. So Elijah is not suggesting that Ahab is to be called Lord, but the word Lord with a little l as in master. And we went over that some last week. If you've ever rented a house or an apartment or something like that, you had a landlord. But you would never suggest your landlord was equal to God. One might ask, why wouldn't God just send Elijah straight to Ahab without the need for Obadiah meeting him in the way? Why did God put that extra step in there, this extra event? Well, we can't know all the reasons, but one of them is going to emerge here, and that is that Obadiah, although he was a faithful man, needed to have his faith tested, and therefore he needed his faith strengthened. 
Let's look at an example of that truth in the New Testament. If you're taking notes, write down Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 32. That's Luke 22, verses 31 through 32. Jesus is speaking to Simon Peter. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Now Peter answered by saying to Jesus that he would go with him to prison and even to death. And yet it was Peter who after that time would deny that he knew Jesus three times before the rooster crowed that night. And while Peter loved Jesus, and while Peter was a Christian, his faith needed to be tested and strengthened. For one day, he would preach at Pentecost and many other places, and then he would be killed for his faith. And Peter also needed to know that Jesus was praying for him. Does that give you chills? If you were Simon Peter and Jesus said, I'm praying for you, man, you know that prayer is going to get answered exactly the way it was prayed. And Jesus always gets his prayers answered. Whereas during the trials of Jesus, Peter was not ready to die for Jesus, but he would one day lose his life for the gospel's sake. You know what the difference is? That when Peter lost his life for the gospel's sake, his faith failed him not. Before his faith had failed him, it didn't mean he wasn't a Christian. It meant that his faith was not strong. And the reason Peter's faith failed not is because Jesus prayed that it would not. And that, my friend, is powerful. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3 James chapter 1, verses 2 through 3 goes right along with this. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations or trials, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. The trying of your faith worketh patience. Do you remember... A man named Gamaliel, he was a doctor of the law, he was a Pharisee, and the apostles were getting a third degree from the Pharisees and Sadducees. Persecution, mocking, scourging, imprisonment, all of that. And after Gamaliel warned those Jews to give the apostles a little space, leaving the judgment of their religion to God, Here's what is said, and this is found in Acts chapter 5, verses 40 through 42. Acts 5, 40 through 42, if you want to write that down. And to him, that is to Gamaliel, they agreed. And when they had called the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And they departed from the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame 
for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Do you know who was in that bunch? If you go back and study that passage, Simon Peter. Simon Peter, the one who once denied the Lord three times, who followed afar off, who said, I know not the man. Now he was willing to suffer. And not only to suffer, but to, to rejoice that he was counted worthy to suffer for preaching Jesus' name and then go do it again. And that, my friend, is a tried faith, it's a tested faith, and it's a true faith. That's what I want, and I know there are going to be many stripes laid to me for that. But how would a Christian ever say, well, I really don't want to have that kind of faith? Apply this truth to Obadiah now. The Bible says he feared the Lord greatly. After all, he fed the Lord's prophets in a cave, or in two caves. He went out to help Ahab find grass for the mules and the horses. But Obadiah was not ready to die for the Lord. His faith needed to be tested and strengthened, and so does ours. And let's see why Obadiah's faith needed to be strengthened. What in the verses help us understand where his weakness was? Well, there are three inquiries rolled into the next verse. Look at verse 9, 1 Kings 18, verse 9. And he said, What have I sinned that thou wouldest deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me? Now, what had Elijah done? He said, Go get Ahab and tell him I'm here. And Obadiah's response was, What have I done wrong? What have I sinned that you would do this and that when I get there, he would kill me? So let's look at these three questions, three answers areas of inquiry that Obadiah made here. First of all, he said, what sin have I done? Second of all, uh, why would you deliver me into Ahab's hand for it? And three, why would you deliver me to death for it? So let's examine these three matters. First of all, what have I sinned? We are a pitiful lot when we try to justify ourselves before God, aren't we? And let it suffice for Obadiah that God sent a prophet to him to tell him to fetch the king for a meeting. That's all he had to do. Ahab, Elijah's out here. He said to tell you that. This wasn't a complex command, was it? But Obadiah made this about himself rather than about God. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses did the same thing. God called him to go to the Pharaoh's house and say, let my people go. And boy, Moses was full of objections, wasn't he? And in one place, he said, who am I? And then, who should I tell them you are? And then, well, what if they don't believe me? Now, Moses is talking to God. And then in verses 10 through 12 there in chapter 4 of Exodus. And Moses said unto the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, neither heretofore nor since thou hast spoken unto thy servant. But I am slow of speech and of a slow tongue. 
And the Lord said unto him, Who hath made man's mouth? Or who maketh the dumb, or deaf, or the seeing, or the blind? Have not I the Lord? Now therefore go, and I will be with thy mouth, and teach thee what thou shalt say. And if you read on after that, even then, Moses asked God to send somebody else. Now why would Moses, the one who pointed the children of Israel to Jesus through all of the the types, the tabernacle and the, the ordinances, the going to the promised land, why would Moses throw such a fit at God's command to go to the Pharaoh's house? Well, that tendency in Moses, as it is in us, comes from a worldly, fleshly perspective which we all have residing in this carnal body that we inhabit. It's the flesh warring against the spirit. The spirit knows what to do. The spirit says, amen. But what does the flesh do? It's weak. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak indeed, the Bible says. A person who has objections to tithing will say, I can't afford it. Now, what's the first thing they did? They took one of God's commands and they made it about themselves instead of about God. They say, I can't afford it. Well, God never commanded us to tithe if we can afford it. He didn't put that caveat on there. He commanded us to tithe that we may prove him. See, it's not about us. It's about him. So that he may open up the windows of heaven and pour us out a blessing such that there would not be room enough to receive it as recorded by the prophet Malachi there in chapter 3 and verse 10 of Malachi. Obadiah made Elijah's command about his physical safety rather than about his spiritual growth. He didn't see this as an opportunity to prove God. He saw it as a risk that he didn't really want to take. You see, Elijah wasn't sending Obadiah on a fool's errand as Obadiah saw it. He was sending him on an errand from the Lord. In Genesis chapter 22 and verse 8, Genesis 22 verse 8, in the midst of Abram taking Isaac, his son, up to the mountain to sacrifice him, Abram said in faith, he didn't argue with God. He said, my son... God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. So when Abram received the command from God to go up the mountain with his son and offer him there for a burnt offering, who did Abram make that about? He made that about God. His son said, Dad, where's where's the lamb? Where's the ram? And instead of Abram saying, you know, son, that's a good point. We don't have anything to sacrifice. He said, God will take care of that. You just go up there where God told you to be and do what God told you to do and he will take care of supplying the provision. It was about obedience to the Lord, not about his physical safety. And Obadiah would have done well here to say, God himself will lead me and provide for me even in the face of Ahab. That would have been a great testimony and a great attitude. Now look at the second inquiry he makes. We first looked at What sin have I done? Secondly, and this paraphrases what you see here, why would you deliver me into Ahab's 
hand for this sin that I have done, that this isn't even about in the first place. Supposing his own sin was the reason Elijah sent him to Ahab, Obadiah wanted to know why it was Ahab to whom he would be sent. Well, Obadiah had started off with a flawed premise, a bad beginning, that this assignment was given to him because of his sin. It wasn't. He had the same thinking error that Job's friends did after Job's children, all but four of his servants, and his livestock had perished. And if you've read the book of Job, you'll know there was a time after his friends arrived where Job sat silently and they sat with him for seven days. He had boils from head to toe. He was sitting on ashes. He was grieving. He was physically miserable. Just short of death because God told Satan, don't kill him. And in Job chapter 8, verses 1 through 6, it says, Then answered Bildad the Shuhite and said, How long wilt thou speak these things, and how long shall the words of thy mouth be like a strong wind? Doth God pervert judgment, or doth the Almighty pervert justice? If thy children have sinned against him, and he have cast them away for their transgression, if thou would seek unto God betimes, and make thy supplication to the Almighty, if thou wert pure and upright, Surely now he would awake for thee and make the habitation of thy righteousness prosperous. Let me summarize that. Job had responded to what one of his friends said, and Bildad, one of the three, well, one of the four there, said, your children sinned against God. Maybe that's why he took them. If you were pure and upright, maybe none of this would have happened. Bildad proposed that either Job's children had sinned or Job was not upright or both. But God's testimony about Job is different. In fact, it's found back in chapter 1 and verse 1. And here's what it said. This is God's testimony about Job. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Job was upright in God's sight. And as you studied the book of Job, you'll find out it's because Job believed in a coming Redeemer. He said, I know my Redeemer liveth and shall stand on the earth in the latter day. Boy, that's a man who knew Revelation, didn't he? And the other truths as well. So if you apply this to Obadiah, his wrong thinking from the beginning caused his wrong conclusion at the end. And then the third inquiry Obadiah makes after what have I sinned and why would you send me to Ahab for this is why would you deliver me to death for that sin? That's what the text says. It says that thou wouldest deliver thy servant into the hand of Ahab to slay me, to kill him. And knowing that the wages of sin is death and that we've all sinned, and come short of the glory of God, then we rightly conclude that we must all die. Whether physically 
or in the case of an unbeliever, physically and spiritually, the second death. And whether by Ahab's hand or by a lightning strike or a wild beast in the wilderness, Obadiah's death appointment was in God's hands. It's appointed unto man once to die. Somebody makes that appointment, don't they? That's in God's hands, God's sovereign will. And once again, Obadiah's flawed premise led to a flawed conclusion. The command wasn't because of his sin. He wasn't being delivered into Ahab's hand because of his sin. And he wasn't going to be killed for by Ahab for it either. This wasn't about Obadiah as much as it was about God. You know, the sooner we do, we Christians, do as the lad with the loaves and the fishes, giving our little to God, the sooner we will enjoy God taking that little inadequate portion that we carry in our feeble hands and doing mighty things with it. For Obadiah, the only ability he had to have was the ability to walk and talk. Walk to his king and tell him, behold, Elijah is here. That's it. Simple enough, huh? But not for the flesh. Let's look at verse 10. Obadiah continues his objection here. As the Lord thy God liveth, there is no nation or kingdom whither my Lord hath not sent to seek thee. And when they said he is not there, he took an oath of the kingdom and nation that they found thee not. So Obadiah told Elijah that Ahab has sent his servants all over the land to look for Elijah. And those who came back and said, King, I, I couldn't find him. The king didn't just say, oh, okay, well, 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 maybe better luck next time or some silly saying like that. He made them take an oath, swear an oath of the kingdom and the nation that they had not found him, that they hadn't seen him, they hadn't hidden him, they hadn't tried to help him with his uh, absconding. Verse 11 And now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord, Behold, Elijah is here, and it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from thee that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee whither I know not. And so when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Obadiah's fearful reasoning continues here, doesn't it? Unbelievable, Elijah. You're telling me to go tell Ahab, I found him, but when he comes here, the Spirit of the Lord's going to have carried you off somewhere else. Well, that's just short of paranoia, isn't it? And I'll be found a liar in the presence of the king, and then he'll kill me. <laughs> Afraid of that physical death again. And he said, but I thy servant fear the Lord from my youth. Now, this statement reveals more about Obadiah's fear of the terror of the Lord than it does his reverence of the Lord. I'm not saying he didn't reverence the Lord. Certainly he did. But he had the two things out of balance. And his fear of the, the terrible hand of the Lord upon sin was so out of balance that it became his paranoia. 
And although Obadiah feared the Lord from his youth, as we see, his faith needed to be strengthened. Verse 13. Was it not told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now thou sayest, Go, tell thy Lord, Behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. The reason for Obadiah saying, But I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth, in the prior verse, becomes a little bit clearer here. Certainly he risked his life by hiding and feeding the prophets whom Jezebel sought to kill. No doubt, every day Obadiah was nervous, perhaps downright afraid, that his actions would be found out. In essence, what he's saying to Elijah is, isn't what I've done for these prophets enough? Shouldn't that suffice? Can you find somebody else perhaps? Must I give the palace one more reason to take off my head? Don't ever find yourself in that position where you tell God, Lord, I think I'm doing enough for you right now. You're never doing enough in that respect. Verse 15. Now, we've read all this objection. Listen to how Elijah answers. And Elijah said, As the Lord of hosts liveth before whom I stand, I will surely show myself unto him today. That is, unto Ahab. I love how Elijah never answered any of Obadiah's objections. He didn't say, Now, come, come. He's not going to kill you. This isn't about yours. He didn't answer any of them. He never tried to convince Obadiah of the logic of the command. He didn't tell him the specific ways that God would protect him and so forth. Elijah simply stated, I will surely show myself unto him today. That is unto Ahab. How many of God's servants expressed fear when God gave them their assignments in the Bible? That's a worthy study. But you know God is not interested in our objections, only our obedience. He's not interested in our objections, only our obedience. If he gives you a command, then you're to obey that even if you say, well, I don't really see how that's going to happen. I don't see how God's going to do that. You don't have to. You obey and it will happen. Verse 16, so Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. Now that all the objections are out of the way, Obadiah does exactly what Elijah told him to do. And Elijah does exactly what Elijah said he would do, as we'll see in the next verse, verse 17. And here we'll slow down just a little bit. And it came to pass when Ahab saw Elijah, that Ahab said unto him, Art thou he that troubleth Israel? Troubleth. There's a key word right here. The word troubleth or trouble is to stir up. And it literally means to make turbid, T-U-R-B-I-D. Now, you may not have run across that word except on the Friday crossword of the New York Times, but it's a real English word. I see that word from time to time when I'm reading about a lake, and it will say on the 
upper end of the lake where the rivers and the creeks come in, it's turbid. That means it's muddy or silty, whereas the lower end of the lake may be very clear. So imagine being on a lake with clear water, and suddenly the wind blows, and that calm lake turns into a sea of whitecaps, and the water begins taking on the color of the dirt and the sediment that was once settled on the very bottom of the lake, nicely not being disturbed, out of sight. This is called turbidity, the tendency of all of that sediment and dirt to stir up in the water and to affect the appearance of the water. You know, a lake consists not only of the water in it, but the shore around it, the dirt, and other things at the bottom. It consists of the fish and the plants and the organisms, dead or living, that are in it. Now think of Samaria as a clear lake, because that's how Ahab saw it. And now Elijah has blown as a strong wind, bringing about large waves to stir everything up, causing all the dirt to come to the top. Elijah did this by praying that it would not rain for the space of three and a half years. And rather than Ahab saying, oh, no, look at all this dirt and sediment. This is really not a beautiful sight at all. He took issue with who he called or who he said troubleth Israel. He called him a troublemaker, didn't he? And this is a message for all who call truthful preachers troublemakers. You, sir, or you, ma'am, are the troublemaker. And preachers, don't let name-calling get in the way of you preaching the truth in love. God's got your back, and he's got your front, and his word is your sword. So don't worry about all that. Don't worry about someone like Ahab saying, well, you're just a troublemaker. Because you know what man's tendency is to do? I'm not either. What do you mean by that? Brother, if you mean, or sir, or ma'am, if you mean by preaching God's word that I troubleth the United States, then amen. Verse 18. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, in that ye have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Here's the reality of turbid Samaria, Samaria that's been troubled, as Ahab said. It was turbid all along, but Ahab said it was clear. Now, can you imagine how foolish it was, or would be, if we were to go out here to Cedar Creek Lake after a good old flood and high winds white capping that lake, and it can get pretty nasty looking. And I were to say, hey, Brother Larry, look how clear and calm that lake is. Isn't that beautiful? You say, well, Andy, it's not clear or calm at all. It's turbid. You would say that, wouldn't you? Turbid. And I say, oh, no, 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 it's, it's fine. Now, I would have a reality problem there, wouldn't I? There's something wrong with me if I can look at that lake that's turbid and the white caps are, are stirring up all of that dirt and call it clear and calm. And yet that's what people do when they say, oh, everything's fine. The United States is just fine. The world is fine. Well, everybody is good. 
It's just not true. Verse 19. Well, in verse 18, he said, You have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. And those two go hand in hand, by the way. One leads to the other. What is it called when you forsake Balaam and follow the Lord? That's called repentance, isn't it? And you're going to serve one or the other. You're going to serve a spiritual master, God or mammon. And that's what the Bible teaches. Verse 19, now therefore, send and gather to me all Israel unto Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal 450 and the prophets of the groves 400 which eat at Jezebel's table. Here was the invitation list from Elijah. Israel, 400 prophets of the grove, 450 prophets of Baal. And in man's eyes, Elijah was outnumbered. In God's eyes and Elijah's eyes, not only were they not outnumbered, but this wouldn't even be a fair fight. When the Sadducees and the Pharisees were persecuting Paul the Apostle, and even having dissension among themselves because the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection or spirits or angels. But, all, but they were a common enemy to Paul. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. And that is the philosophy they adopted. And at one point during this dissension and during this persecution of Paul, the Pharisees admitted that it was futile, it was useless to fight against God. And there in Acts chapter 23, verses 7 through 9, Acts 23, 7 through 9, And when he had so said, there arose a dissension between the Pharisees and Sadducees, and the multitude was divided, for the Sadducees say there is no resurrection, neither angel nor spirit, but the Pharisees confess both. And there arose a great cry, and the scribes that were of the Pharisees' part arose and strove, saying, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. So that Pharisee had enough snap to know it doesn't matter how many there are of us. It doesn't matter how badly we have the Apostle Paul outnumbered. If a spirit or angel has spoken to him, we're not going to fight against God. So they confessed that that was from God. Now the Sadducees didn't agree, but the Pharisees confess that. Now back in your text in verse 19, it says this about those prophets and Israel and it says which eat at Jezebel's table. You see that? Which eat at Jezebel's table. And as we noted before, you're going to have a spiritual master and you're going to serve that spiritual master. And eating at Jezebel's table tells us who their spiritual nourishment came from and although it tasted good to them in the flesh it was cancerous foul food sweetly disguised as good for their souls you know the fruit that Eve ate was beautiful it was tasty but it had the lethal poison called the wages of sin throughout all of its sweet meat 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 18 through 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 18 through 22. 
Paul wrote, Behold, Israel after the flesh, are not they which eat of the sacrifices partakers of the altar? What say I then? That the idol is anything, or that which is offered in sacrifice to idols is anything? But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to devils and not to God. There it is. It's either to the devils or to God. And I would not that ye should have fellowship with devils. Now, who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians, isn't he? Ye cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. Ye cannot be partakers of the Lord's table and of the table of devils. Do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Now, if we use this table as uh, an object lesson here, when you become a Christian, your assigned seat is at the Lord's table. It's an analogy of your standing in Christ, your seat being seated in Christ, and, of course, your sustenance in Christ. It's not about the food at a physical table. It's about a spiritual truth. And Christian, you never lose that seat at Jesus' table. You may say, well, what if I had fellowship with someone at Jezebel's table? Your seat is still at the Lord's table. You don't have a seat at Jezebel's table. You did when you were lost, but you traded that seat when you put your faith in Christ. You don't belong at that table. Spiritually speaking, positionally speaking, you're not there. But in the flesh, you're tempted, and sometimes you go there. Thankfully, this table, this spiritual table, is not made of flesh and stone and wood, but it's in heavenly places. That's told to us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Ephesians 2, 4 through 6. Listen to where we sit. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The prophets of Baal in our passage had no seat at the Lord's table. And they were not seated together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Their spiritual nourishment was not God's word, but the words of Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. Verse 20. So Ahab sent unto all the children of Israel and gathered the prophets together unto Mount Carmel. That's pretty haughty and arrogant. That he would assemble all the people and all the prophets to fight against Elijah. What he did not believe is that he was really fighting against God. He didn't understand what even the Pharisees did in Paul's day. We see no fear or hesitation whatsoever from Ahab. Verse 21. And Elijah came unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him not a word. Now, the phrase all the people would mean all the people who were there. All the people need to hear the same message from God. All the people are sinners, so no one is exempt 
from this question, how long halt ye between two opinions? The word halt, it's an interesting word, is actually translated more often as the word pass over in the Old Testament than it is the word halt. And three of those uses of the words Passover are associated with the Passover night in Egypt. It's also translated as the word leap and the word lame. So to understand how it's used in this verse, let's look at the word at the end of the prepositional phrase. It said, how long halt ye between two opinions or thoughts? As God passed over one house in the book of Exodus to the next and to the next, it is understood that he spent very little time at any one house passing over it. He didn't linger over a house two or three days and go to the next one and linger over it two or three days. He did it all in a night. So he passed over them all very quickly, perhaps all at once. And similarly, understanding that word maybe a little better, Elijah is asking these people, how long are you going to pass over from one opinion to another about who God is? Is he God or is he Baal? Is he God or is he Baal? Today it's Baal, tomorrow it's the Lord God. And in passing from one to the other, these people have shown a spiritual limp which causes them to sometimes walk this way and sometimes to walk that way. Now let's associate this question, how long halt ye between two opinions, with what we learned about the table of Jezebel or the table of devils and the table of the Lord. In a spiritual sense, there were people whose seat was at one table, but they pretended to have a seat at another. It says, and the people answered him not a word. Yes, not even Obadiah, assuming he was there. And why wouldn't he be? He was the governor of Ahab's house. If he were there, and I think a pretty strong argument could be made that he was. If he were there, he would remind us of Simon Peter, who followed the Lord from afar off and denied knowing him. Oh, he was there. He was a Christian, but he was halting between two opinions by denying the Lord. And in verse 22, then said Elijah unto the people, I, even I only, remain a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. I'm very glad that we're not able to say that yet. There are at least two preachers of the Lord on the premises right now, perhaps more. There are preachers of the Lord around the county, around the country, and around the world. We know some of them. But it appears that the prophets of Baal outnumber them. That's no big thing for us. Verse 23. Let them therefore give us two bullocks, and let them choose one bullock for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. And I will dress the other bullock, and lay it on wood, and put no fire under. I don't know if Elijah had a bullock to his name, but if he did, it was wise not to let one of them be used for a sacrifice to Baal. Instead, he said, there are 850 of you, so you supply the bullocks. And you notice he let them choose first. He took the leftover. He demonstrated the spirit of Abram with Lot concerning the land which Abram would take. 
He said, you, you take one, I'll take the other. It doesn't matter. And the spirit of Jacob, when he told Laban, you can have the, all the solid cattle and I'll take the ring straked and the speckled. It doesn't matter. It's in God's hands anyway. I tried to teach my five-year-old granddaughter this principle yesterday. She was going to play a game that involved colored pieces. You've heard of the game Trouble. It's a pretty annoying game. That thing pops in the middle. But the kids like it. And so she said, I call blue. I want blue. And I told her it would be sweet next time to ask the other player, what color would you like to be? And then you pick the ones that are left over. So she got blue. She's five. I need more time. We're going to have to stop right there. Uh, I I don't want to hurry through the next point in this verse. So we'll pick up in the middle of verse 23 next week, Lord willing. Any questions or comments about the lesson? All right, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the faithful who've tuned in, who've come to listen to it, be taught. And Father, we look forward to the next hour as we sing praises, as we exhort one another, and as our pastor preaches your precious word again to us. Lord, we pray that you would help us to deal with all the the distractions and cares and stress that we may have brought in from the world, just to set that aside for a little while. And Lord, just to be taught by your spirit, edified as a church. And if there's a lost person, that they would be evangelized and would put their trust in Jesus. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.